Okay, so today, Worthy is the Lamb is the title, and you'll see why, because this passage is all about all the various ways that the Lamb is worthy, but then all the various ways in which that declaration is made in prayer, in song, in corporate gatherings. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy. Right, so in a form of introduction, I want to connect this to the last message, which is from chapter four. So let me go ahead and read this for us, chapter four, verse one, because this again opens up this throne room scene of which chapter four is the first half, we are now in the second half. Verse one says this, after this, this is John, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. If you think back, seven churches, the last one was Laodicea. The promise to the Laodiceans was, yes, to, to come back and, and not to be hot or, or to, to be hot or cold, not to be useless and lukewarm, but to ultimately welcome Jesus into their lives, into their church, and to renew that relationship again. But a promise was one with which there's a glance, a gaze of Jesus upon the throne, and that you will reign with him. So we pick that up, and now we see that, wait, Jesus is connected to this throne room, which leads to the visions that happen in 4 and 5. Now, these visions parallel and reflect and update a lot of the passages in the Old Testament, whether it's Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Isaiah, all kinds of things by which this revelation to John gives the Christ-centered both view and fulfillment of what is to come. And as we go through Revelation, you're going to see a lot more of that. But in this throne room is also where there's a turning point that takes place, because there's going to be something that is revealed in this chapter, this scroll, this book, that then only the worthy one can open and break its seals. This scroll is going to be what releases the next 16 chapters of Revelation, because the rest of Revelation is going to be about, hey, the scroll is open. The book and the content is unveiled. What does it say? One at a time, okay? One at a time, one seal at a time, one bowl, one trumpet at a time. You'll see what is revealed. Now, next week, Gabe is going to go into more detail, or actually, I guess, we are, we're not meeting next week. The next time, Gabe is going to go into more detail about different views on the, the last things and on the last days, okay? So there's different views, different systems. Um, and even on this, you know, we kind of come from different views. Uh, and uh, that's something that we can uh, talk about later. They're not drastically different on some level because we take the seals and the bowls and all these things and, and they're worth studying. But uh, whether it is directly linear or maybe some of it is cyclical and speaking the same things, that's where there's different views on this. But where it matters is actually looking at each thing. It actually comes back to the core of what is going to be preached today. What is this ultimately about? Whose hands is this future in? And ultimately, who will save? Who is going to bring this revelation to completion? It is going to be the lamb that was slain. Because he was slain, because he's alive, because he's on the throne, that the church will be rescued. And everything that God has ordained will come to pass. Because this lamb is where he is in this vision. The things that he has promised will happen. You can bank on it. There is nothing more definite and certain than the fact that this land who is worthy will bring everything to fruition and completion. So this is a really significant turning point, these two chapters, four and five. After this outflows what is revealed from the scrolls. 
And so we're at the scene now where we're about to see, well, what leads up to this book opening and why is this book important? Let me see here. Let me go ahead and read this quote uh, to you. Uh, this is something that also kind of defines your mind a little bit uh, for these two chapters. This is by a particular author and theologian named uh, G.K. Beale. He says this, part of the pastoral purpose of chapters four and five is that suffering Christians be assured that God and Jesus are sovereign, in control, powerful over everything, and that the events which they are facing are part of a sovereign plan, which will culminate in their redemption and the vindication of their faith through the punishment of their persecutors. Okay, so that definitely applies to first century Christians who have been scattered, who are being persecuted. The temple, which maybe maybe although maybe many of them came from, that whole entire sacrificial system destroyed and sacked by the Romans, and now the church is everywhere. But it also speaks to us today, who are in many ways pilgrims and sojourners in this world. Um, and so Revelation leads us there. Let's go ahead and get started. Let's look at the very first few verses here that speaks about then this scroll. Let me go ahead and read it for us, starting from verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven scrolls. So whether it's a scroll or whether it's kind of like a book, that's kind of, you know, scholars kind of have their different views of a book or a codex, uh, it's hard to say. But the idea is this, that there's this like amazing, powerful book. And right when I read this, it reminded me of uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I think it's called National Secrets. It's the one with Nick Cage. It's one, the first one, they're looking for this president's book. And this president's book kind of contains all of the secrets of the history of America. The chase, it was great. You know, all the action, it was really good. And then what was revealed in there was interesting. It made me think of that. But this book is actually so much greater than that fictional book. This book is real. This book has Old Testament prophetic roots. This book is anchored directly with God's plan and will for all of history and for his people. This is not just any old book that happens to be tightly secured. This is a scroll that was hidden at a time to be revealed and opened in God's time. It's a very significant scroll. Let me read you guys a couple of passages from Daniel. So this book was seven seals. Starting from chapter 12 of Daniel, verses 1 through 4, there's a description of a particular scenario. And then at the end, it speaks of this book, okay? So I'll read from verse 1. You'll only see verse 4 up there, but I'll start reading from verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. To sum up, that's talking about the end times, okay? But then here's verse four. But you, Daniel, shut up the words that God has revealed and boom, seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So people and civilizations and cultures will continue on from this point. But this book, which has the words of God, will be sealed until the right time. It is closed until a particular time ordained by God. 
Now, if you look at the second passage that's up here, this is Daniel 7, 21 and 22. And I'll read it and then I'll share with you why. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This also sounds like the end times, right? It sounds like something that happens in the future. There's a reference to the Ancient of Days, uh, which is actually a, a really cool title. It almost sounds like Marvelish. Uh, but you know what? All the cool names that you know people come up with, so much of it is biblical in origin in an idea. I mean, the Bible has like the coolest ideas uh, and the coolest titles. Um, but this idea that someone who is connected to God, God, the Ancient of Days, he came and then there came a series of judgments that was related to why he came and then ultimately the kingdom was in the hands of god's people again talking about end times how do i want to connect these two verses for you to understand the book contains what happens in the end so the ancient of days we will see is the lamb who was worthy because he was slain okay that's who jesus is and then after he comes after he fulfilled his mission and the reason why he came then all of these things happen. And how do you know what they are? It's in the book. And why would I say that? Because when the book is opened, starting from chapter six, all these things are revealed, related to judgment, related to God's people, related to ultimately the final kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. We, if the millennium is revealed in chapter 20, right? So all these things are at the end when God's kingdom comes in fullness and the last days are finally consummated, but, it is revealed in a book, and this book is sealed seven times. Only the right time and the right person can open it. And so then we'll go to verse two. The questionnaire is presented. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Sounds like a legitimate question, right? Who is worthy? But it says a few things. One, it's not something that anyone can do. And also the idea of worthy is not about your ability or capability or your status. Someone who is worthy, it's the essence of who they are. You're worthy, not because of what you've accomplished. You've worthy, you're worthy because you are yourself worthy. There is value. There is intrinsic worth in who you are, not what you can do. So the angel who's made by God, all angels are made by God to serve him. Well, the angel's not worthy, or he would have done it himself. It's not an issue of whether he can peel back seals. He can't because he's not worthy. So he's asking this plain question that because the lamb has come, and we'll see that in a moment, then eventually this book is going to be opened and seals will be opened and judgments will be revealed. God, it's your time. Who's going to open this? Who is going to do this? And then we see in verse three, the response. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one in all of creation, no one at all who was made spiritual, angelic, earthly, no one, no king, no ruler, no emperor could open this. Imagine the first century 
Christian who's been persecuted, boxed in, chased away by all kinds of authorities in the earthly realm, who claim power, who claim prestige, who claim Godhood. And this is said in verse three, none of you guys are worthy, none of you. You can kill us, but you're still not worthy. Here comes then verse four, John's response. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, this is one of those interesting times in the book of Revelation. I mean, John's receiving a vision, right? And so his job, well, not his job, but what he's trying to do is to tell you what is what he sees. It's not all the time where you see his interaction with it. It'd be like if you had a dream and you, and you woke up and you're like, hey, let me tell you about my dream. You tell me about your dream and then you're done with your story. But he's telling everyone a vision that he received. And then at this little moment, it's like he's saying, hey, take a break. Let me tell you what I think about what I just saw. And in verse four, he's like, oh, my gosh, I, I, I can't believe it. You know, this is God's will. This is God's plan. And no one can tell us what it is. No one can give us God's promises in fullness. We're suffering here. We're dying here. John is in exile on the island of Patmos. He's old right now. If there's anything that you look forward to when you're old and almost dying is you just hope in God and his promises to be fulfilled. That's what the Bible teaches is to hope in Christ, hope in his promises, hope in his deliverance. And he sees this vision. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm one of the apostles. If I can't see this, who's going to see this? No one can open this at all. Not anybody. Can't think of anyone. So he's crying and he's bitter and he's desperate for God's answers, for God's leading, for God's help. And so you go to the next part. In the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his sadness, in the midst of his desperation, and the vision continues. Turn from verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. How beautiful is this? John didn't even have to wait that long. In verse 4, he's crying bitterly. And by verse 5, as the vision continues, one of those around in the throne room, whoever he is, these elders, he has an answer. No, there is someone. There is someone. Not only is there someone worthy, but the someone that is worthy is both God and both man and was God's perfect fulfillment of all of his prophecies and is the only one for which God's people can be and will be delivered. He is identified by two scriptures, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So God's people, the promised Messiah will come through by God's hand through the tribe of Judah, but he was also human in that he's part of the root of David, a human king. So this Messiah would be God in terms of his heritage and his ability and his connection to creating a people, but he would also be a man in that he is directly connected to a particular family and kingdom and heritage. This Messiah has conquered everything, whatever needs to be conquered, and this Messiah is not done. He can open the scroll. He can break the seals. This is a really beautiful thing. 
So you want to know more about them. Starting in verse six, you find this, these particular details about the conquering lamb. First of all, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, here's some descriptors, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What are the descriptors? That he was and has been slain. What a weird way to identify somebody. You are already and completely dead. Like you were killed. That's his title. It's funny that it's not where, oh, the resurrected, the living Christ, the Messiah. No, the reason why this title is used is because this is actually how the Messiah fulfilled and kept God's promises. We find in the Bible so many ways in which it is clear that a perfect and just God, who is also complete love, will not tolerate sin, but then will be the one that finds a substitute to die for your sin. So Adam and Eve, right? They were, they had sin and they were naked before God. They were trying to sew together pathetic fig leaves. What did God do? Kill the creature, covered them. Substitute for their shame, right? Abraham and Isaac going up to the mountain. Okay, sacrifice your son, Abraham. And Isaac, he's not a kid or a child. Isaac was probably a young man who was able to carry his own wood to get up the mountain. God says, we're going to kill your son. Why? Because that's the price to pay. And then Abraham said, okay, well, I trust you, God, but I will come back. There's a price to pay. Moses enters the scene. God kills the Passover lamb, put the blood on the door, right? But then even then, as God makes a people for himself in Israel, he creates a temple sacrificial system for them, that there's creatures that are killed to be able to atone and reconcile you and God from your sin, right? But we know that that's not the end because you'll continue to sin and you'll not have enough creatures to kill enough to cover all of your sins because it's a heart issue. So then Jesus comes, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Why did he come? To give his life as a ransom. He, because he's been slain, God's people can be rescued. It's not that he's not raised from the dead. Of course, that is the complete confirmation and also evidence of his godhood and God's approval. But it's the fact that he was slain, the fact that he went to the cross, that makes salvation and reconciliation with God possible because he is perfect. So this identification of this lamb who has been slain above all things in this vision is actually really beautiful. He's a lamb that was weak and broken for our sake, but he conquered and is powerful and can do what no other creature can do because he is not a created being. He is God. He can open the scrolls. He can open the seals. When you see the description, seven horns, that's an evidence of power. Seven is a number of perfection and complete fulfillment. So seven horns means this lamb is extremely powerful. Seven eyes, knowing your heart, all seeing, omniscient, being able to pierce into the soul and the seven spirits 
of God. It means the complete, full work of God in his Holy Spirit. It's not that there's seven spirits, but seven in each instance points to fullness and completion and absolute maturity. And so that's who this lamb is. But he was slain, but he's not weak. He's the only one that can open the scrolls. He has authority, and he's executing God's plan, even as we speak in this throne room vision. So that leads to the response. The response is actually worship. And before we go there, I want you guys to consider how you prepare yourselves to enter into whether personal worship or corporate worship. The reason why is because I think you're at the point now more and more, um, you know, as adults and people that make decisions and people that choose what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and to what capacity. Worship is one of the most revealing ways of your relationship with God. And I don't mean that so you can compare with people. That's not the point. But I think it begins with your heart. The extent to which you worship personally, and then also you gather to worship corporately. the ways in which you do it is ultimately from the inside out a display of the worthiness of God. And Gabe talked about that last week. And so what we're going to enter into now is a giant passage in which because the lamb has been identified because he can open the scrolls, because he's about to unveil all of this truth in God's timing all the way to the end, that this lamb is worthy of worship. And I want you guys to start a little bit and prime yourself a little bit to think, wait, what, is, what is worship to me? How do I worship God? And put aside just for the sake of engaging with scripture, don't think about, okay, this is what FCBC Walnut does, or this is what I do in my college fellowship, or this is how I was raised, or this is where I came from. Let, let's get back to the purity of this. What does it look like when people, creatures, angelic beings, when they worship this lamb, what does that look like? Why are they doing it? What motivates them? And how does it impact and change and grow them. Because at the end, worship can't be about you. Because we're not worthy to open the scrolls either. Worship is directing our actions, our affections, our hearts, our priorities, our thoughts, our desires, sometimes in tangible ways, but most of the time in just living life and our intentionality towards the one who is worthy of worship. But you know what? If you have segments in which you do this with others, it should actually be compounded even more. The corporate experience of worship should be one in which you are encouraged and built up and strengthened as a son and daughter of God. So that when you leave and go out into the world, into a circumstance, maybe parallel to where first century Christians define themselves, perhaps in, in persecution in this cancel culture, perhaps in friendships and communities, where people aren't Christ followers, perhaps in your own home where there might be different priorities and what it means to make Jesus first, perhaps even in your own struggles and bouts with difficult things, depression, aimlessness, a sense of hopelessness about maybe the, the near future or the long future, uh, feeling lonely, feeling like you're wrestling, feeling your worth is not all there, especially when you're comparing to other people. A lot of these feelings are not abnormal, but there's a lamb 
who has conquered. And there's a lamb who is still working and executing God's plan. There's a lamb for which all of us who are in Christ will eventually fall on our faces in perennial worship for eternity, but who is living in us now if we are Christians and also in the midst of our gatherings if we are the church. What is worship like? I think it's time to think about that if you haven't that much. So let's look at verse eight. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, so there's a posture of worship before God. Their external posture and actions reflect a higher status of God and a humbler status of you. But one of the things that they did first was that they prayed. When we gather for corporate worship, we pray. A lot of times the prayers are offered from the pulpit or from the front. But notice how it says here, prayers of the saints. It's not one person prays and you sit through it and have to stay awake. It's that when that one person's praying, the saints participate and join and agree and in, in, in person kind of corporate participation are also praying with one another. God is listening and God is answering the prayers of his people all the time. When we gather to pray, we are worshiping. When we worship, we pray. And this happens whether you're by yourself, when you're in a small group of people, or when you're in the whole church. But prayer is so important, and I love that prayer is listed here first. Now what you'll see is you'll see three different songs, okay, that's sung by a growing number of people. So the first song you're going to see is sung by the saints, which are all those who have put their faith in Jesus, all of God's people. The second song is sung by the angels. So these are all of God's spiritual servants, right? And then the last song is by every living creature. But what you also find this is that every song, it starts kind of long, but then it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. There's a narrower focus of what is said of the main idea, but then there's a broader reach of the people that are praising God and the beings that are worshiping God. But it starts with the saints. In verse 9, this is said, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is described as a brand new song. This is a song that maybe some had not sung before. Certainly it wouldn't be their song before they put their faith in Christ. But for the saints, this is a new song, a song that they are singing together. And if you look at what is declared, what is the song saying? The song pretty much lays out the gospel and what Christ did to rescue sinners and how it gives not only a promise of being rescued and saved and reconciled to God individually, but then also this is all part about how God is making a people for himself. The saints are the family of God. The saints 
are the spiritual community with Christ as head. The saints are a separate group, a holy nation, peculiar people set apart for God's purposes. The saints were created through the death and resurrection of Christ. The saints are singing the song because the gospel gives the saints all of these promises that you will be saved and rescued from your sin. You will be reconciled to God, that you will have a future as a part of God's kingdom. You will reign with Christ and you will be with him forever. This is what they're praising him for. Now, some of you guys sitting in this room, this actually might be a new song for you. Maybe you're not a Christian sitting here. If you're not a Christian, you might know the, and have heard the lyrics of the song. But this is not yet your song because you have not put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sins. If this is you and you want to know more about what it means to, to follow Jesus and to trust him, to be rescued and saved from your sins, to be a part of God's family and to be a part of his kingdom, to reign with him, but then also to walk with him. Please share that in your community group. Please talk to Gabe. Please talk to me. Please talk to any of student leaders. We want to tell you about how you can trust in Jesus for yourself so that this is your song, so that this is a new song for you. We would love for that to be God's will in your life. But for all of us, in many ways, this is kind of a fresh experience, isn't it? That when you gather with God's people, that we get to declare this. But even as we declare this, it doesn't get old. A lot of times when we come to worship, our mindset is, what has God done for me lately? And if he's done me well, then I will praise him. If I'm wrestling, if I'm struggling, if life isn't the way that I want it to be, if I'm in a broken place, I'm in a bad place, you know, I'm in a desperate place, if things aren't working my way, maybe I have nothing to praise. I just got to fake it. Fake it until I can make it, even when I come to church. But you don't say that at all. Their praise is anchored and rooted in what Christ has done for them, in the kingdom that is theirs and that is promised for them. Their praise is rooted in the character and the work of God and the one who is worthy of the man who was slain. This leads to even when you guys share community groups. What are the ways in which, even though you know the gospel, you know the truth, and you know God's promises, maybe in terms of where your faith is at and where your heart is, you need prayer, you need support, you need encouragement. You know, be there for each other for that. This is actually why we're here, to build each other up. As a spiritual family of God, we want to declare these praises together. But we also know that not everyone's in the same place of joy, of contentment, and of peace. But it's not about saying things that are just kind of like band-aids so that you can feel better. It's actually looking at Christ and to say, you know what? We believe him. We trust in his promises. Let's pray. Let's journey together. Let's catch up. Let's talk. Let's walk. So this first song is for the saints. And they sang, I'd imagine, if these were the truths that they were singing, that they sang with joy and exuberance. And then we go on in verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. By the way, that's 
probably a, a nice clue for us to think, you know, when we worship God, how should we respond? Do it loudly, do it boldly, do it joyfully, do it with passion, right? And I know some of us are thinking, you know, I can't sing or I don't know the song or whatever. It doesn't talk about the quality of singing here. It speaks about the how you're worshiping God. They were saying things with a loud voice. And what do they say? Again, focusing on the worth of the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How many things were said there? Seven. Perfection. Because that's the worship that the lamb deserves. And these spiritual beings that were made for God's good pleasure to serve him and to be used by him in our lives as God's people, they worshiped him with all of their hearts. And they sing it loudly. They did it with boldness. They did it with clarity. They did it praising him for his character, not for what they can get from him, but for his character and who the lamb is. Now let's go on to verse 13. This is now everyone, okay? And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Oh, let me, uh, that can go. I'm sorry. Can you just uh, forward to the next slide? And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then what that four should do? They agreed together and said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So he, all of them humbled themselves. And the elders were around the throne. They just said, Let it be. Because Amen pretty much is an affirmation and a declaration that God make it so. The Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is powerful. The Lamb is mighty. The Lamb lives forever. The Lamb deserves honor. Let it be, make it so. Does that mean that the lamb needs to be upgraded? No. It means that those that are worshiping would live as if it was so. Not that the lamb needed help from those praying to be all those things. Is wherever it is that you're at, whoever it is that is worshiping this lamb, let it be that he is the greatest, he is the highest, and he is the best. In these songs, we find a few things about why Jesus is worthy. And I think this is helpful to know because doxology, which is giving praise and glory to God, that's why we the song we sing at the end of service sometimes is called the doxology. It begins with doctrine. The right doctrines lead to doxology. The wrong doctrines lead to wrong doxology. So if you believe the right things, about God, then your praise, your doxology to him would reflect those truths and be carried with emotion and be carried with force because you know it's true. Okay, so why is Jesus worthy? So this is more of kind of glossing over these three songs again to pick out some things. Number one, he was slain. Okay, so this is something that is completed, it's perfect. But it's also something that is, in that it is how he is being described now. So why is Jesus worthy of worship? It's because 
He is the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation and redemption and bringing everything to completion. Not only that, he's alive. So you're not praising a dead lamb. That was all the lambs before Christ. They're dead. This lamb is alive. So he is slain, but he's alive. Secondly, he ransomed one people from every tribe, nation, tongue, ethnicity. This is actually how you know that there's some distinctions that we probably have going into forever. Because if this vision is one in which John can see people and their differences and where they're from, that just might be how we're going to be. That God actually made us this way. It's not a bad thing. But it's not about our ethnic or racial identity. That's the main thing. It's that our greater identity is being children of God. But John can see this in his vision, that there's different types of people. So it's not like we go to heaven and we all look the same or have the same color or the same hair. He can tell there's different people. So for what it's worth. But he made all those people into one people. So what did the lamb do? He gave you family. He gave you community. Turf doesn't exist because you have nothing better to do and you have nowhere else to go. Turf exists because if you are a son or daughter of God, then you're part of a spiritual family in FCBC Walnuts. If this is your church, you might be from another church, but in our congregation, you're not able to walk with every single person so you are part of a group, and your group happens to be turf, college fellowship. But even then, we know that in this group, there's many of you, as well as both genders. So the ways by which you guys divide up into community groups to know each other better, into small groups to go deeper, those are all ways by which you experience family. Church is family, and the Lamb is being praised because he has made one people and one family for all of God's children. That is something that we can give praise for as well. This separates from so much of the Old Testament mindset of things where some have thought that, you know what? It's because you're Jewish. It's because you are a literal biological son of Abraham that you are part of God's people. Jesus smashed that in that he came both for sheep who are God's, the Israelites, but then there's also sheep that are outside of Israel that belong to him. We find that in the Gospel of John. He smashed that very clearly. So it's not your biological belonging or identity, nor is it your calling or your religious status. It's not only the Levites who were the priests who can know God and come between God and his people. It's not only the pastors. It's not only the special people. It is one people, for which certainly people have different functions and sense of call and giftings and roles. But it's one people, and this is something that the Lamb is praised for. Finally, in these songs, there's this declaration that God's people will reign with him forever. You know what a sense of hope that is for people who are scattered and suffering, who because they're Christians, that they're being persecuted, they're being overlooked, they're being separated, they're being chased away, things are being taken from them, they're being marginalized, 
in their homes, in their communities, wherever they go in the Roman Empire and beyond. This idea of reigning with the king, that's the last thing they would think about. They just want to be allowed to let live by the king. But why is the lamb worthy of praise? Because the lamb is ultimately the sovereign who is in control. The lamb will reign over every king and every emperor, and his people will reign with him. That's a promise. That's a song. So let's go to the last slide here, and I'm going to close with this. Uh, these are your application questions, by the way. You can uh, flip it. Uh, number one, is the gospel song your life song? So I have mentioned that maybe some of you guys are not Christians here. You have not followed Jesus. But if you're here, it's because God's brought you here. Maybe your next step is to, to learn more, to find out how you can know this lamb who's died for the sins of those that God is saving. And maybe an application for you is to put your trust in the lamb today. Put your trust in Jesus today. That could be something that you guys talk about in your community groups. And please do, don't be shy about it. And it doesn't mean that you have all the answers or you've already made a decision. No, it's talk about it in your group so that people can encourage you and walk with you and talk about the gospel with you. Number two, are the people of God your people? Because the Lamb has made a new people, a new family. Are they your people? And I don't just mean that you happen to be here at the right place at the right time or maybe at the wrong place at the right time, whatever. But it's that you actually see God's people as your family, your people, and that you have a sense of connection and relationship and commitment to Christian community. It's something that is made through perseverance, guys. You don't fall into a situation where all of a sudden everyone is your best friend and everyone is your brother and sister, even when they're in Christ. Every relationship takes work. But what we are able to praise the Lamb for is that he's removed all of the walls and barriers that separates sinful people. And if we are looking at Christ and we are wanting to worship him as the Lamb of glory, then we have more in common than we don't. And we can actually go deep with each other and build relationship and friendship with each other. Guys can build relationships and be brothers with other guys. Guys can build relationships with girls and be friends. This is in Christ, in that what separates us is not as great as the walls that have been broken down in him. Church helps us to learn how to do that. It helps us to experience that. Sometimes I think in the church we're kind of weird about stuff, our friendships and our relationships, as if you live a life outside and the church is weird and different. It should be the other way around. You learn how to be a friend in the church so that you can be a better friend outside. But that takes time. And you guys are coming from different high schools and different colleges. It takes time. Culture is different. But maybe something for you to consider is, to what extent are you committed to Christian community? And if TURF is your Christian community, talk about how you can go deeper with the people here, starting with your community group. If you want to go deeper, consider a small group. But it's got to start from something quantifiable. It's got to be people that, you know, like, you know, gun to the head. Who are your four people? And you're like, okay, bam, 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 bam. That's when you know you're getting closer to this being the community of God for you, is that you can name those people, which means you have to put in the work. It's mutual. It's both ways. It doesn't happen overnight by itself. Finally, the third question, are you going through suffering and hardship? 
And I don't mean that compared to first century, because compared to first century, none of us are. Okay, our lives are just easy peasy, totally comfortable, totally free, totally handed to me, all of us. There's not any of us that's exempt compared to first century Christians, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. But are you going through hardships that really challenge your faith and make you question who you are, make you wonder if God loves you, make you wonder if you have a place in this world, whether you're of any good or any worth or any value, regardless of what you believe, there's also how you feel. Well, ultimately, worship is proclaiming what we know to be true and believe. But it doesn't end there because what you believe to be true can actually lead and guide your feelings. But that means that you take steps towards letting that happen. You don't compartmentalize your life and your struggles as if, oh, I'm doing the Christian thing, so I'm okay. But outside, you're just suffering in silence. In your groups, that's the starting place to talk to pray. That's even what, you know, me and Gabe could be here for. We know that in your groups that a lot of times you guys are doing things that you like to do and talking about things you like to talk about. And, you know, maybe we know or don't know many of those things, but at the end, as pastors, we want to walk with you. We want to encourage you. We want to point you to scripture. And we want to pray for you. And maybe that's where some of you guys are at as well. They're going through suffering and hardship. Don't worry about how you feel compared to others. Maybe it's nothing to someone else, but it's something to you. Share that in your group. Pray for each other. Check in on each other during the week and continue to encourage one another. Why can't we do this? Because there's a lamb who is slain, who is on the throne, who will bring everything to pass that God has ordained and promised for his people. So every day we can move forward with joy with worship and with celebration, even through the hard times, because he is faithful and good, powerful and true, right? So let me go ahead and close in prayer, and then um, I think there's a song, and then we'll go into our groups of prayer. Now, Father, we thank you so much for tonight, and thank you for this time. Just reminding us of how much we need you, Lord. These first century Christians definitely needed what John saw, the hope that is in Christ, the true hope that is in the gospel that transforms and changes everything, and also the promises that are offered to your people. Father, and we need them too. Help us to humble ourselves and remind ourselves, God, that we're not above this. In fact, these songs that are sung needs to be our songs. May we respond to you now in this time of singing, but also may we carry that on in our worship, in our minds, and our hearts, and the things that we say, and the things that we do, that we walk out of these doors wanting to be a living sacrifice, but knowing, Lord, that it is not our sacrifice that paid the price, it was Christ. Thank you, Lord, for accomplishing everything that we needed to be made right with you, and to be made right with each other. Help us, God, to declare the praises of the only one who is worthy, the Lamb who is slain. Meet us here now as we do so. In Jesus' name I pray.